Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody tonight. Let's grab our Bibles and we'll open to Genesis chapter 12. I'm not going to tell you what page that's on. I feel like we'll be able to find that pretty quickly. So you just go ahead and work on on Genesis 12. We're going to start a new series tonight. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about lately is just I've been compiling a list in my office of various ways that God uh, interacts with His people. And uh, so as I was working through this list of things that uh, just kind of, you know, I'm always keeping little lists of of things that God's doing uh, in my life and around me and just, you know, seeing what He has, uh, what He might do with it in the future. And so the list began to grow and then I began to be interested in it. And then through a lot of my extracurricular study through Galatians, I have been chasing all these wonderful rabbits in different directions and and compiling all this stuff. And so I decided we're going to do a series called Life. And basically the reason I call it Life is essentially because this is our life in Christ and our life with the the God of the universe uh, as our Heavenly Father. And these are, I'm just going to talk every week about a different way in which God intersects with us, the way He does things in our lives, the way He uh, uses various circumstances and scenarios. And and every week will be another opportunity for us to see just a practical way in which God um, connects with our life. And so tonight we're going to talk about divine interruption from Genesis chapter 12. I want us to think about um, this issue of life interrupted. When God uh, loves to uh, come and interrupt life as we think it's uh, meant to be or the way we think it ought to be going or whatever the case may be. And so we're going to look at Genesis 12 and we're going to use this passage of Scripture as a just a, a very uh, practical passage of Scripture that's not going to be new to most of you in the room, but we're going to look at it from a bit of a new way and we're going to just allow God to use it to mold and shape us and to help us understand a new facet of His nature and character. So will you pray with me and then we'll study together. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we confess, Father God, that it's a perfect and errant gift that You have given to us. Uh, These words are intended for us to shape us, to mold us, to teach us, to guide us, to lead us. So, Father, I pray that You'll take it and use it in our lives. We ask that You'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And Lord, that uh, you may just take what we will discuss tonight and God grow us more like the Lord Jesus through it for his glory. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. And before we jump into Genesis 12, for the sake of time, let me just catch you up a little bit with where uh, where we're going to pick up. We, we are introduced to Abraham prior to Genesis 12. We already know from chapter 11 that Abraham is the son of Terah. He has, he's one of three brothers, and he's married to Sarai. And they are uh, uh, a family that is living in uh, Mesopotamia. And, and their, uh, their family is, is doing well. They they move into this the land of Ur. It's called Ur of the Chaldeans. And so Abraham 
and his family seem like a pretty normal family. I guess his family goes early on. And there's some, some interesting things that we'll see as we look at this, uh, this interruption, how God interrupts Abraham's life. And, and hopefully there'll be some things that you'll be able to recall in your life that you've experienced that will, uh, you'll be able to see the hand of God. And the next time God interrupts your life, you'll be uh, maybe a little bit more prepared. So first I want to look at the radical call of Abraham. I want you to see the radical nature of God's call on Abraham's life and the radical nature of God's call on your life. And you are going to see so many gospel parallels as we look at this. You're going to see so many uh, shadows of, of the new covenant in this whole process. But it is truly radical is the only word I know of to describe this. Now, Abraham and his family, they live in Ur. Now, this is a, this is a booming uh, city. It's really the most advanced city on earth at this time. And that's important because you need to, you need to understand that he lived uh, in a very uh, comfortable place that had all of the things that uh, uh, a city could, would need or would have. And he was affluent and successful. And so life was good. The thing about this city, the Ur of the Chaldeans, it was rampant with idolatry. They worshipped uh, more than 700 gods that we know of. But the, the primary god that we're introduced to in Scripture is this moon god. And so they were, really, uh, they were really big on this moon god. But Abraham was a pagan. He's pagan. And he lives in a pagan culture. And he is... He is a million miles away from God. He's not thinking about God. He is completely immersed in his culture. He's doing his thing. He's living his life. He's wealthy. He's successful. For example, the Bible says in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, that's his brother, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And look at what it says. And they served other gods. He was, a, he was an idolater. He was a pagan. He, he, he was right in the midst of a, of a culture worshiping all these gods and doing all the things that people do uh, to try to uh, find the blessing of God. They know there's something more. And they manufacture all sorts of ways uh, that they can relate to this God, whatever the God is that they make up in their imagination. Now, here's my question. How can this be? I mean, just stop for a second and think about, okay, so every time we're, you know, you're singing Father Abraham with your kids. This is the beginning. This is where Abraham starts. And this pagan man who lived in a pagan culture, who wasn't Seeking after God in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says of him, the God of glory appears to Abraham. And so here's, you know, similar, I guess, to maybe the case we're seeing on Sunday morning in Galatians with Paul breathing murderous thoughts as he's on the road to Damascus. But Paul is at least a Jew and zealous over his religion and at least is... is Pursuing the right God, if not in the wrong way, but pursuing the right God. Here we have 
an utterly, utterly pagan man, engrossed in an utterly pagan culture. And all we know is that he's content and fine in his life and where he is. And he meets the living and true God. And at that moment, everything changes. Everything changes. This passage of Scripture has so radically impacted and affected your life that you can't even imagine the implications of anything else. It was a radical, radical call of the least likely person. And in the midst of it being a radical call, it was, it was radical, number one, because it was a radical break from his past. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. Now, Abraham is not a volunteer, okay? He's a recruit. He's not out looking for this. He's just going through life. He's not seeking. He's sought. He's not pursuing. He's being pursued. And it's so important for us to see the radical nature of this call and, and how radical the break is that, the, that, that what God says is calling him to. God just shows up on the scene out of nowhere and says to Abraham, I want you to leave the best place on earth to live. I want you to leave all the people that you know. I want you to leave everything that's familiar. I want you to leave your culture. I want you to leave your, your family, everything you've ever known. I want you to leave all of that. And I know that you don't know me. I know that you don't know about me. I know that this is all new to you. But I want you to leave. I just want you to leave. Drastic doesn't even begin to describe this call. It is a radical break from his past, from everything that's familiar to him. And it's also a radical trust with his future because the next verse says, to a land that I will show you. To which, when, when I'm, whenever I'm reading this passage of Scripture, my mind is shouting at the Scripture. It's shouting, you know, I'm putting myself in the position of what's happening and I'm shouting things like, what land? What are you talking about land? What, what do you mean? What, what do you, land? I mean, hello, how far is it? What, what, what's, the, what's the climate there? What, give me some information. What am I going to do there? How am I going to live? Is there going to be food for my kids? I mean, I got questions. I mean, let's be honest. None of us are moving an inch. We're not. I mean, if this is, you know, Tony of Ur of the Chaldeans, I'm like, I'm going to need a couple more pieces of information. I'm just being honest. I mean, this is so radical. I mean, he doesn't even say... How do I know I can trust you? How do I know you're trustworthy? How do I know this is it's going to work out? I don't. It is a radical call. Are you with me? All right, now let's put another block on the pile. Number two, the radical promises of God. Now, here's where it really starts getting interesting. 
Because now, starting in verse 2, God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I want you to notice in verses 2 and 3, I want you to notice that in verse 2, they're all about Abraham being blessed. And then in verse 3, the last half of it is all about Abraham being a blessing. And so the first part are all for Abraham to be blessed. And then the second part is all about him in turn then being a blessing. So you can remember back when Rod did a series on the covenants and he talked about the Abrahamic covenant and we we looked at this passage of Scripture and he used this passage of Scripture to show us this covenant and then how it progressed across history to where we are now. But you notice what's missing in, in this whole conversation right here that wouldn't be missing if me and you were having it, I can assure you. There's no reason... There's no reason. I want to know the reason. I am the first one in the room that always says why. I want to know why. As soon as you tell me what, the next thing out of my mouth is I want to know why. I want to know why. Don't tell me what we're doing until you tell me why are we doing it? What's the purpose? God doesn't give reasons. When He interrupts your life, you can say why until your vocal cords give out. He doesn't give reasons. What does He give? Promises. That's what He does. Yeah. Now, why do I always want to know why? Well, I mean, I've kind of painted myself in the corner here. I don't really know how to get out of it. It's a lack of faith in other people's plan. That's my problem. See, I want to know why because I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm still trying to sort it out. But you see, that's not how it works with God. God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he doesn't tell you why. He says, here's what we're going to do and here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do and here's what I'm going to do. And so you do what you're going to do and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you see, that's, that's God's way of, of, of working with us because he's got purposes. And, and his character and his nature never changes. And in his purposes, his character and nature come to bear in those. And so he just tells you, here's, here's what I want you to do. And here's what I'm going to do. And so God blesses Abraham so that Abraham in turn can be a blessing. God has blessed you so that you in turn can be a blessing. God does not give reasons and God does not bless dead ends. He doesn't bless dead ends. He blesses thoroughfares. That's what He blesses. He pours blessings into vessels that spill out into other things. That's how He works. And so if if your vessel is just taking in and not giving out, well then, it's going to stop taking in. That's what's going to happen. Because that's how He operates. And He's just showing us this... 
Right off the bat, he's saying, well, now here, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And, and, and because of you, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then all of this is pointing towards Christ. But it's also teaching us about the way God operates in our lives. He doesn't give us reasons. He gives us promises. And he blesses us so that we can be a blessing. And so this, that what we see in the first three uh, sections of verse 2 is this personal blessing. Then it becomes a national blessing. Then it becomes a global blessing. You see how that works? He's going to bless Abraham. And then Abraham's going to become a great nation. And then through that great nation, the world is going to be blessed. And so it's going to be this, the flow of blessing is going to continually go out and be spread outward. And that's exactly what God calls us to do. That's exactly what God calls us as a family of faith to do. And so Abraham has... The call of God. He has the promise of God. And that's all he's got. That's all he's got. Just the call of God and the promise of God. It's a call to faith. When God interrupts your life, He begins to call you to something, He's not going to explain all the details to you because it's a call to faith. He's, he's, he's going to promise you. Why does He promise? Why doesn't God use other things? Why, why, is there, why is there a call to faith and then a promise? What does the promise do? How does the promise connect to the faith? A promise. See, if I promise you something, then that promise is only uh, going to be as worthwhile as your trust that I can deliver on the promise. And so the call is a call to faith and the promise is a call to trust. And when faith and trust come together, great things happen. But now they have to work together. That's the thing. They have to, they, they work and, and strengthen one another and they begin to God uses him to do great things. Now look at verse 4. Watch how this progressively goes forward. We start with a simple intersection, God's radical call, followed by his radical promises. And look at verse 4. So then Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot, that's his nephew, he went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, I'm just saying, not only... Or all these questions shouting in my head as I'm reading the text. Then I'm thinking, and I'm 75 right now. I'm 75 and you're going to come at me with this. Okay, pack it up. We're going. And I'll show you when we get there. And I'm 75. Verse 5. Then Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Now Shechem, where this terebinth tree, this giant tree of Morah, this was a place of great idolatry is is why this is being pointed out in Scripture. And the Canaanites were there in the land. So now we come to this great place of idolatry and Baal worship, and we've got the Canaanites that are there in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. This almost makes me just... Start laughing. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel 
And he pitched his tent in Bethel on the west side of Ai, on the east side. There he built an altar to the Lord and called the name of the and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. Now, all right, let's talk about this for a second. Number one, I want us, I want you to understand that the evidence of faith is obedience. Now we see this in the book of James in the New Testament that. That faith without works is dead. That, that a faith that's not connected to obedience is not genuine faith. It's just words. It's just intellectually saying, oh yeah, I have faith in that, but it's gotta, there's got to be obedience to, to actually validate the faith. Now, here goes the pieces of the puzzle. So, how do we know that Abraham believed God? This is really an easy question. Because he went. Okay, but the fact that he went validates the genuineness of his faith, right? Yes. Now, you cannot have genuine faith in something you don't trust. Right? Okay. So now we see this equation coming together where we have faith and we have trust. We see the way we validate faith is by obedience, by action. Action validates faith. And then you cannot have genuine uh, faith in something if you don't trust it. So genuine trust always accompanies action. Always. So in other words, if I say that I trust something, I mean, I can say that I trust something and not trust it. But if I say that I trust something and I really trust it, then there's Action behind it. So if I say that I trust that the chair will hold me up, it, it's no good. It's not validated until I sit in the chair. But by sitting in the chair, I am proving that I trust that the chair can hold me up. And so we know simply that Abraham had faith in God because he went. And so here's where the rubber really meets the road in our lives. See, so many times for us, God intersects with us. And what do we so often do in this culture when God interrupts our lives? We freeze. We just lock down. Because we don't have all the information we need. We don't have all the specifics. We don't have the plan and the program and all the stuff that we... And so we just lock down. And we don't move to the left and we don't move to the right. We just stand right where we are. And suddenly our favorite verse in the world is just be still and know that I'm God. We just start quoting that up like a storm. See, Abraham, he moved. Abraham obeyed. Faith, when, when faith is born into our heart, okay, it's not... It's not an action, it's not a moment, and it's not a journey. It's a moment and a journey. That faith is born into our heart. There's a moment when our faith becomes genuine. But then that faith also, it's, we don't leave it behind. We don't leave this moment when our faith became genuine, do we? No. There's a moment our faith becomes genuine, but then through the course of our lives, we're taking faith... It, We're on this faith journey and our faith is growing in this journey. 
And so his faith is symbolized. Now, now in this passage, you know, from, from 4 all the way to 9, there's some, there's some interesting things, especially in the second half, 7, 8, and 9, that, that give us some, some indication of uh, uh, just some, some factors that, that, are, that play into, that I believe have some teachable moments about Abraham's faith. There's some things that are symbolized here. Did you notice that when I was reading it? I almost got tickled at the first one, you know, when I was reading it. Abraham lived in the comfort of a city surrounded by people. That He had all of the things that, you know, a person could have at that time. There was no more advanced city than the one he lived in. So he had everything a person could want, and he was doing well. And then... Verse 8 comes along and says, He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent. And then something occurred to me. Do you know that Abraham's entire life from here forward was spent in a tent? He left the comfort of city life and everything that he had and became a, a nomad, a, a sojourner. I mean, he's carrying around a tent. He's sleeping in a tent everywhere he goes. Now, granted, I'm not saying that, that you know, he had a three-bedroom condo in, in Ur, but I am saying that it's better than a tent. He abandoned all of that comfort and became a lifelong tent dweller. And after traveling all that way, I mean, this is a journey he's on. I mean, there, there is a, an incredible amount of uh, real estate that's covered just in this verses 4 through 9. So he's on this journey and he's carrying his tent and he's got his family and all of his possessions and he's going along. And the Bible says like in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there... He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then the second half of verse 8, it says, And there he built an altar. So the two things that jump out at me are one, that he, this, that he has a tent and that he lives in a tent everywhere he goes. And the other thing is that he's continually building an altar. Because it seems to me the last thing that many people would be doing is building an altar be grumbling about being in a tent, be grumbling about the way all this is going, and then instead he's building an altar. You see, he gets to the land and there's already people living there. The Canaanites are already there. I mean, hello? Okay, God, let me get this straight. You show up, you want me to pack up all my stuff and get my family and leave everything behind, okay, and here we go, and I don't know where we're going, and I don't know what it's going to be like, and you're not giving me any information, but I believe, I have faith, and I trust in the promises that you give me, and so here we go, we start trekking across the world, we finally get to Canaan, and there's already people there in the land that I'm supposed to get, and then you say... Oh, by the way, hey, you see this land? Uh, your descendants are going to get it. What about me? <laughs> what? What about now? 
Why my descendants? I mean, what is all this about? Have you ever noticed that the journey of faith, the journey that that commences the moment faith becomes genuine, is not a straight, smooth path? That it, it, it doesn't just, you don't just start, you know, lollygagging down the, the, the highway of blessing as soon as you become a Christian. It doesn't work like that. There's all these zigzags and curves and potholes and, and detours. And every time you turn around, there's, you know, some new. And why? Because God is continually interrupting what we're doing. He's in, continually intersecting with us. And every time he does, it, it's sort of, you know, makes us uncomfortable. We're not sure what's going on. But, the, but God has got a plan and a purpose that's different from the one that we have. You see, as soon as, as soon as God tells me, I'm just, I'm in confession mode. As soon as God tells me to pack up all my stuff and to go to this land, and He's going to let me know where that is. Okay, once I get past all the things I'm going to have to get past, and then I pack up all my stuff and get my family and I start going, but I'm not sure where I'm going and I start going, I have one thing on my mind. One thing and one thing only. Getting to the land that God is sending me to. That's all I'm thinking about. I mean, I am so fixated on why? Because I don't like this. I don't like not knowing. I don't like not having a blueprint. I don't like not having a road map. And so I'm trying to get to where God's called me to go as fast as I can so I can get there and then I can just catch my breath and be there. Amen. That's what we want to do. Yeah. And so then if I get there, because here's the thing, in my mind, the task is all about me accomplishing what God's called me to do. But that's not what God's doing. That's just what we think God's doing. That's what we're doing. We're just trying to get there. That's not God's plan. God's just telling us to go there. God's calling us to do things. But it's not about the things, is it? Yes, because God needs us. He can't do it without us. No, it's not about us. It has nothing to do with us. I mean, it's nothing to do with them or the thing. It's, it's, he's, he's working and He's testing us and molding us and shaping us. He's concerned about building our faith. That's what He's doing. He's building our faith. He's establishing a foundation in Abraham. That's what God's doing. But to... To Abraham, and, and I'm trying to look through Abraham's eyes. And I'm seeing so many times in my journey where my faith is just time and time and time again accompanied by test after test after test after test. And if I, if I focus on what I think God wants me to do. If I focus on getting to where I think, then I, then I miss the point of what God's doing. It's not about the task. It's about your heart. It's about your faith. That's what God's doing. If God just wanted something done, He would just wiggle His pinky finger and it would have already been done a hundred times over. See, that's what He's doing here. This is all about Abraham's faith. And we get to, we get to, you know, look from 10,000 feet up and see everything with everything that we know now. And we get to, you know, 
analyze all this, but also reflect back and put ourselves in this and then think about our own journey and think about how God has done the very same thing in our own lives. Oz Guinness wrote uh, a book called Doubt. And in the book, he, there's a quote where he says, As believers, we cannot always know why, but we can always know why we trust the God who knows why. We just have to realize that God doesn't play that game. You can't always know why. And even when you think you know why, you're probably wrong. But somehow we feel better if we have a, an idea or a scenario. But we can always know why we trust the God who knows why. See, if I were told to leave everything and go to a land that you would show me, I would think that when I got to the land, it would be ready when I got there. I mean, this is the God of the universe we're talking about, right? In other words, if, if he says, hey, I want you to go to this place and do such and such a thing. I mean, in other words, you would expect that it would all take care of itself, that it would all work out, that everything would be sort of, you know, sovereignly predisposed to work just according to the way we think it would work. But he arrives at the land and the Canaanites are there. They're already there. So then I started thinking about all the times in my life where I arrived where God has sent me and I found far less there than I expected. Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever been going somewhere in your spiritual journey that you felt like God was sending you? And so you're going and, and you begin to come up with all these things in your head. And so you start, we start building up what we're doing and we start really just making, uh, making in our own mind the way it's going to be. And then when we get there, well, it's far less than we expected. We're disappointed a lot of times. It's not what we had built ourselves up to. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with what God said. He's been utterly and completely 100% faithful in everything He said. The problem is we sort of take the ball and run with it and start adding all these things to it and, and magnifying things into something. See, we can convince ourselves of anything. I mean anything. When you, when you just, just spend some time... And, and look at the, 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 the errancy and the rampant just disregard for Scripture that permeates the so-called Christian culture. It is astonishing of what we can convince ourselves of. And people just buy it. They just roll right into it. And so the, 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 the prosperity gospel comes along and says, listen... I mean, if I hear one more sermon on John chapter 10, verse 10, about how God is going to give us not just life, but life more abundantly. And that gets tangled around into this theology that says when you become a Christian, He's going to give you this abundant life, which must mean that in the abundancy of life, that all your problems are going to go away. 
And the thing that just makes my head explode is that how do we ignore the fact that every single person who followed Jesus, there was nobody was rich, nobody was famous, nobody was successful. They all died a miserable, lonely death. They were all poor and broke and rejected. But somehow the whole Bible can be built around this poor, rejected carpenter from the middle of nowhere who never had a place to lay his head down. And because we want it so bad, because we we want to believe it so bad, we can just take that and run with it and believe that God's just going to make all our problems go away. Do you see how insane that is? And that's just one little tiny example. And over and over and over. We engage in conversations. We, we hear, you know, people lamenting the fact that they have been faithful to God. And yet, they still struggle. And yet, marriage is still a challenge. And yet, my children don't miraculously just obey me like angels from heaven. And yet, it's still a challenge to financially balance the books every month. And yet, it's still there's still days when, when you know, you feel like you can't take another thing and then, you know, smoke starts billowing out of the hood of your car. And we just lament the fact that, but I'm, I'm faithful, God. I'm faithful. I'm doing what you asked me to do. Why are all these things happening to me? And you know what we do? We just revert into this twisted, perverted prosperity gospel right in our own lives. In other words, take that mentality and apply it to Abraham. Here is one of the most pivotal lives in the entire Bible narrative. The father of our faith. And he gets sent on this wild goose chase. And he finally gets to where he's supposed to go. And there's people already there. Oh, that story's not over. What's the very next verse say? Look at verse 10. Dun da da dun. And now there was a famine in the land. Well, praise the Lord. There we go. That's got to be what we were expecting. We just knew that was going to happen. You mean to tell me I finally got here? There's already people here. And to top it off, there's a famine. I mean, this has got to be wrong. I mean, at this point, who, who of us is building an altar and celebrating the faithfulness of God? Surely He's forgotten me. Surely He's misplaced, you know, oh, oh, my location. I mean, somehow the timing got off. I mean, something has to happen. So Abraham, the Bible says, he went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was less severe and was severe in the land. So he ends up in Egypt. Now, I don't know if when he 
gets to Canaan and he sees the famine and he sees the Canaanites and he sees all the things going on, if he says to himself, well, you know, I, I don't really want to go to Egypt, but I got to go to Egypt. So I'm just, again, I'm just confessing. You, I know you take the high road all the time, but I don't. So let me just confess this to you because here's what I'm thinking. Well, look, God, I did what you asked me to do and you blew it. So I'm going to Egypt. They might have a Holiday Inn Express there or something. I don't know, but I'm getting out of here. And somehow it's like, you know, I'm justified because, hey, I did what God asked me to do. And then I get here and now there's a big famine. And you know what this reminds us of? That as God's... Agenda here is to build the faith of Abraham. Circumstantial faith will always fail. Always. It will absolutely, positively, 100% of the time, crumble. You cannot have faith that is circumstantial. You can't. And that's the problem. That's why no one can sustain in the prosperity gospel. Because it's unsustainable. Because you finally get to the... Your your circumstances can't go that long. They just can't. And eventually it unravels. You know why? Because life is hard. And so here's Abraham. And he's teaching us that you know what? The genuineness of his faith is seen in the fact that he went, that he acted, that he obeyed. And then he, he's sustaining, he gets there, the circumstances are there. Now look at what happens in verse 11. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. That's a good way to put it. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you because of your countenance, that they will say, well, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. So please say that you're my sister that it may be well with you for your sake that I may live. See, it's really, you're beautiful, and honey, you know how beautiful I think you are. But if you'll just tell them that you're my sister, then they won't kill me, and so for your sake I'll get to live, so it'll work out. So what ends up happening? So she ends up mixed up with Pharaoh, and it becomes a big fiasco. But what is this teaching us? What God told Abraham... To go to Canaan. He gets to Canaan. Things are a wreck. He goes to Egypt. And he teaches us that, you know what? Our biggest danger is not not all the people that we work with. Our biggest danger is not uh, the influences of the media. Our biggest danger is not all of the things that we tend to run and hide and tower down because of and bite our fingernails and worry over. That's not our biggest danger. Our biggest danger is clearly, absolutely, far and away, number one, not even contested, the person in the mirror. That's the biggest danger. Your biggest danger tonight is you. My biggest danger far and away is me. We represent the greatest danger to our faith because what happens is our circumstances fail us and we bolt. That's what we do. And we start scrambling because we think, well, this just can't be right. Abraham 
thinks this whole thing is about getting to the land that God wants him to have. That's what he thinks. And, and get, get this now. His faith is genuine. Look at what he does. The New Testament says it was counted unto him as righteousness. I mean, we don't have... This is not a crisis of belief. There's so many parallels to this in the passage we looked at this morning with Peter. This isn't a crisis of belief. That's not what this is. He believes. His faith is genuine. He responds. He obeys. He trusts. He goes. But as he's going, he gets fixated on what he thinks the target is, on what he thinks God is going to do. He thinks the point of all this is that God wants him to get to this land. And that when he gets there, that's the whole point. But that's not what God's all about. It's really all about God getting Abraham, not to the land that God wants him to have, but to be the man that God wants him to be. You see that all of the... Every time God interrupts your life, every time God interrupts your life, it's not about the call that God puts on your life. It's not about the, the, the place of conviction or the thing He's... It's about you. It's about your faith. The, the things that He's stretching you, the places He's stretching you are not about the place. It's about you. He's stretching you for you. He's not stretching you for them. When God calls you to... When you begin to feel God moving in your heart and you begin to feel this, this tug to do something and so you feel led to be involved in some ministry or begin to serve in some capacity, begin to be involved in, in the children's home or go on a mission trip or whatever it is, trust me, it's not about the kids at the children's home. It's not about the people who live in some country where you're going. It's about you. It's not about that. It's about you. If God wanted to, He could rain billions of dollars out of the sky right now on every poor, starving nation in the world. Right now, in five seconds. He could drown them in gold if He wanted to. Right now. It's not about them. It's about you. And when you get there... They think it's about you, but it's about them. You see, it's always about the person. God's always working in the person to get the person to be the person He wants them to be. It's always about Him blessing you so you can be a blessing to others. Why? Because He wants to pour blessings on you so you can be a blessing to all those around you. Because that's His agenda. That's His mode of operation. That's why He interrupts our lives. And so don't just freeze and lock down and sit down and cross your legs and put your hands up and hold your head and just think, God, why is all this happening? What is going on? What is the problem? Why don't you just stop a second and think through this and say, wait a second. Maybe God's trying to do something in me. In me. And rather than focus on my circumstances... Rather than start bartering in my heart with God and start, you know, this dangerous trap we get in where if you ever catch yourself enlightening God about all the good things that you do, you have fallen off the cliff. There you are in this terrible circumstance and there's this thing in your flesh that's going tell God you ain't missed church in two months 
Tell him. Tell him you put extra in the offering plate. Tell him about that. Tell him you stopped and helped that, that little old lady with the flat tire the other day. Tell God about that. What are we doing? It's a breakdown, don't you see? Instead, we, we, we need to just stop a minute and think, God, wait a second. I don't know why. I don't know why. But I know you know why. And what I have to do is I have to, I have to go forward on what you've promised. I don't know the reasons, but I know what you've promised. And I know that you always keep your promise. And I know that you're good and right and faithful and true. I know that. And if I know that, then I'm pretty sure I can face anything. I'm pretty sure there's no reason to fear what can only kill the body. I'm I'm pretty sure that if he doesn't allow a sparrow to fall out of the sky without his knowledge, then certainly one who is covered by the blood of his very own son. Yes. And so in whatever circumstance, in whatever situation, we don't know the reasons, but he's given us promises because he's stretching our faith that we might trust him, that we might trust him. And then at the end of the day, Abraham would look back. And here's what I think he would say to you and to me. I think this would be his, his, his message would be summed up to us. He would say, as a new covenant believer, as someone who is privileged enough to be able to sit in a church in the most prosperous nation that's ever been in the history of the world and in the freedom and comfort of this place here, the gospel freely expounded without any barrier or any hesitation or restraint or fear or anything, I think what Abraham would say is he would say, really, faith is meant to be lived out at the cross. That, that our faith is, 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 is lived at the foot of the cross and that I may not know why and I may not know how. But I do know who. And that's all I need to know. And that for you and for me, you may be sitting here tonight and you're thinking, well, that's great, Tony, but I don't think God has called me to to be the, the father of a global movement. Well, maybe not, but He's called you to be something. God never does anything for nothing. And all I'm telling you tonight is, is that I don't know the what and I don't know the how. But I can guarantee you this one fact. That if a drop, if one drop of His Son's blood has been applied to you, then you need never, ever, ever doubt that He has a purpose and a plan for your life. I don't know the how and I don't know the 
the when, the where. I don't know anything, but I do know the who. I know the who. And I know that I know that I know that everything He's promised, He's delivered. And He doesn't do anything for nothing. And the one thing we can rest assured of, not one drop of that precious blood ever, ever, ever in all of eternity will ever go to waste. Never. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank You, first of all tonight, that somehow in Your economy, plan, and purpose, that You would even bother Yourself with interrupting our lives. Who are we to be interrupted by the God of the universe, the One who sovereignly reigns and rules over all things, the One who sustains that which He's created by the by the breath of His voice and by, in the palm of His hand. And that You, Lord, You, the great and awesome God, would interrupt our small, little, insignificant lives. God, I pray that all of us together, all of my brothers and sisters here, Lord God, that we would all, with open arms, welcome, welcome your interruption in our lives. God, come and call and push and stretch. God, you, you just nudge and we're ready to go. Lord, may it be the desire of our hearts to just embrace the circumstances in which we're in right now. Lord, that not one tiny detail of any life in this room is apart from Your knowledge. Not one detail. And Lord, there's a million life-altering details that are true right now in our lives that we have no idea of. And yet, Lord, You know our flesh and how it desires to grab hold of and take charge of. And so, Lord, just help us tonight to just lay down, lay down all of our questions and all of our objections and all of our rebuttals and just walk in the reality of Your utter and complete trustworthiness. That, Lord, we have a million times more things to count You faithful tonight than we even need. You've gone so far above and beyond to prove Yourself to us. There's no room for debate. There's no reason to hesitate, Lord. Why would we? So God, thank You. Thank You that every life in this room is precious to You. That You have a plan. You have a purpose. That there's not an accident here. That the very fact that breath is coming in and out of our lungs, it proves the fact that, Lord, You are working and have a purpose for us here tonight. So God, just help us to see. Open the eyes of our heart that we might embrace Embrace 
all that we don't know, but that we might charge fearlessly ahead because of what we do know. So we thank you tonight, Lord. Thank you that you interrupt our lives. Thank you that tonight some of us are interrupted right now. Thank you. Thank you. When we don't know where we're going, we're just going. Thank you when we get there and it's not what we expected. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that even though we're our own worst enemy, you're always there, long-suffering and patient, always willing to forgive, always, always available, always with your ear inclined to your children. Oh, God, thank you so much. So, Lord, you know what each of us individually stands in need of tonight. And we pray that you would just move in our hearts as only you can for your glory in Jesus' name. We'll just have a time of...